Welcome back to a brand new episode of Sustainably Influenced with me, Charlotte Williams. And me, Bianca Foley. This season is all about the people behind the product. In a society where everything has become so disposable and waste is one of the biggest problems affecting our society, we wanted to go back to a time where what you owned was treasured. Come with us on a journey this season where we chat with experts who are taking us back to a time where craftsmanship and ethical consumption were key, but making it suitable for today's modern society. Welcome back to another episode of Sustainably Influenced. This week is a live episode. How exciting! So we're going to be live from Sustainable Fashion Week in Bristol. Which is very exciting. It was very nice to go there and record and moderate this panel, really. This panel was all about people. It was titled Seeing the Human Story and we spoke to some fantastic panellists. We spoke to Anna Breyer from Labour Behind the Label. Delphine Williott from Fashion Revolution and Christian Hardiman from Good On You. We hope you enjoy this special live episode. Let's get into it. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Um, So we have an amazing panel today about people. So we're going to do some introductions first. So the colourful bookends myself and Bianca, um, we are the co-hosts of Sustainably Influence, or the hosts actually, of Sustainably Influence, which is a podcast which you can listen to on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, about sustainability. So our panellists today, we have Anna Breyer, who is Advocacy Director at Labour Behind the Label. We have Delphine Williott, Policy and Research Coordinator at Fashion Revolution. And then Christiane Hardiman, who is the head of ratings at Good On You. So I'll start with Anna, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us more. Sure. I thought I might tell you a bit about Labour Behind the Label and uh, what we do. So Labour Behind the Label is a workers' rights campaign. We uh, are part of something called the Clean Clothes Campaign, which is a global network of 250 unions and workers' rights organisations around the world who are trying to work together for systematic change in the garment industry so that the rights of people at work in the community are respected. We do always try to support garment workers' demands. So take our lead in what we do from workers themselves and their representing organisations to call for the change that they need in the industry. And we lobby governments and brands mostly about their demands and trying to get change happening. One of our main parts of our work is casework. So where somebody in our network identifies something that's going wrong in a factory, so workers have not been paid or the union members have been fired, then we might work together with the union and the partner in the country to contact all the brands and say, look, this is against what's happening in your code of conduct. You need to do something about this. And then we try and resolve it behind the scenes. And quite often that does happen and sometimes it doesn't. And then we go public and try and do campaigning and put it in the press and get activists outside their shops and try and connect up consumer action with the direct demands of workers in factories. This particular case was a factory in Cambodia, the Kingsland workers. It was an H&M factory and a CNA factory. It was quite a long time ago, but their orders had been reduced and then the factory shut down and the factory owner absconded and the workers were left Um, unpaid had wage packets but also severance pay owed to them and they sat outside the factory for five months making sure that the the equipment was not taken out of the factory so that there was still an economic space or that 
equipment could be sold in order to pay their wages. So uh, we worked alongside them to lobby H&M and to lobby CNA to try and encourage the brands to intervene to make sure that those workers were paid. And eventually they were. We've done a whole load of different campaigns over the years on a lot of different things. Just to give you a bit of a flavour of the types of issues that we've ended up campaigning on, it was a human chain that we held on Oxford Street after the Rana Plaza collapse, where we were standing alongside survivors and families of victims to try and get them compensation. We did a funeral out Outside D&G when we were trying to campaign against sandblasted denim, which was killing workers in Turkey. We have done actions at London Fashion Week, handing out packets of peanuts about living wages or workers being paid peanuts and actually living wage being necessary. My favourite action we ever did, which was with something called Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping, who are an incredible artist collective, I guess, from uh, the States, who pretend to be a gospel choir and preacher outside Primark, opened in Bristol, where they did an exercise of the new building calling out the demons of consumerism and um, calling for a, a living wage to be paid. And Reverend Billy kind of hid in the changing room and then the choir went into the Primark store saying, yeah, yeah, I've heard, yeah, oh, child labour in Primark supply chains. Oh gosh, it was a while ago. And then gradually getting louder and louder saying, yeah, they're, they're not paid a living wage. Can you believe it? And then Reverend Billy burst out of the changing room with his big megaphone going, repent you sinners and <laughs> call and Primark. It was really good. One of the more important things that we've been doing recently was post-COVID, looking at the wage theft that has been happening in supply chains since when the fashion industry stopped as people stopped buying things and COVID shut down a lot of global supply chains. The costs of that ended up being passed on to the workers, you know, and the Clean Clothes campaign made an estimate of how much was owed to workers around the world in terms of unpaid wages and severance that was owed to workers in factories who were not paid when factories were closed down. And it was about 12 billion dollars you know of a huge huge order like a cost not taken on by the brands not able to be taken on by the suppliers passed on to the workers as the people who ended up paying the cost you know and that for me is really endemic of many of the issues in fashion supply chains the responsibility and the power is held by the brands and then not taken responsibility for and so it ends up getting passed on and that's something that we have to do something about so that's me amazing christian would you like to Cool, everyone. So it's great to be here and also alongside two incredible panellists as well. So I'm Christian. I'm the head of ratings at Good On You. And I'll just tell a little bit about Good On You and who we are. So Good On You started about seven or eight years ago. We started in Australia, if you can't tell by my accent as well. And we started because we knew that consumers wanted to shop more ethically, but didn't actually have the tools necessarily to do so. And back then, it was a slightly different landscape to the one we have now. So brands were just not being, just weren't really disclosing much information. And thankfully, due to a lot of the work, particularly from Fashion Rev, brands have been disclosing information. However, we find ourselves, particularly in the last 18 months, as in a very different place around disclosure, is that brands are disclosing information, but the amount of greenwash is also massively on the rise, which is leaving consumers in a more confused place and don't know who to trust. And Good On You seeks to solve this problem. So we sit between, I guess, brands and consumers, and we do this via the Good On You ratings methodology. So we rate fashion brands according to their impact on planet, people, and animals. And we do this based on publicly available information. We ask for brands to disclose it publicly for two main reasons. One, we believe that consumers have a right to know exactly how the clothes were made. And secondly, because the information is out in the public domain, there's an extra level of accountability to that information and to that disclosure. And so this is really critical to our purpose. 
basically the good on you ratings methodology gives brands a five point score. So a brand that gets at the top will get a great, which is a five out of five. And it's a five point rating system, which is from great to very poor. So it starts with a great, good, it's a start, not good enough. And we avoid at the very bottom. We rate large brands and small brands according to different methodologies. So currently we've rated close to 4,000 fashion brands for users to look at. And people will discover us for two main reasons. One is they already know that where they shop isn't good and isn't sustainable. So they come to us looking for more sustainable alternatives. The other one is that they just want to discover exactly like how their brands, so they may already shop with H&M or they might shop with Boohoo and they look them up to see how they rate. Often the news is incredibly bad. So, and then we suggest potential alternatives to them in a similar style that is more sustainable. We don't try and say that a brand is totally sustainable, but just more sustainable options. Uh, currently, large brands in particular are doing terrible in our rating system and particularly on the people pillar. The way that brands are currently scored of large brands achieving a great, which is a five out of five, currently no large brand does that. And of the close to thousand large brands we've rated, only five of them have achieved a good and only 15% of them have even achieved in its a start rating, which is a three out of five. So 85% of brands are achieving a not good enough and we avoid. And I think it's really important to be talking about the people pillar in particular today because that is definitely the area where brands are scoring far worse on. I think we did some calculations a few months ago and on average on the environmental pillar, brands are scoring about a seven out of 20 on average, maybe a six or seven out of 20, but on people they're scoring a three out of four out of 20, which is obviously shows that they're not really making too much progress. And I guess so much of the focus has been on the environmental side, even within our sort of user base, we tend to find that people are focused on trying to find an organic t-shirt or they're looking for a vegan product, but actually that the people pillar is actually falling a little bit by the wayside. So it's really important to keep bringing it up and reminding people that there are stories behind the clothes and that there are huge amounts of labor rights abuses. And even not just talking about the abuses, but just not much to actually enhance labor rights as well. So the way that the methodology works as well is that we don't seek to reinvent the wheel. There's so many amazing initiatives out there and our job is to talk and to bring everything into one place. So for example, particularly on the environmental side, it was like the Science-Based Targets Initiative is the gold standard for targets for fashion brands, at the moment anyway, some debate around that. So we bring that into the climate change section. Labor has been one of the more interesting ones because in general, we feel that it's been a little bit more fragmented in terms of establishing what is best practice and understanding what are the actual pathways to improving labor rights. The way that our methodology has worked over the last two years is to move a long way away from social auditing, which you will see a lot of brands on their disclosures talking about how they do audits and they say that that claims to improve things, but we're moving towards worker empowerment as the way to improve labor rights and improve labor conditions and particularly improve wages. So what percentage of workers are members of unions or collective bargaining agreements? What direct action are brands doing to on their purchasing practices? What direct action are they doing with a lot of their suppliers to improve those conditions? So looking a little bit away from the social auditing side and now towards actually what are they directly impacting? But as I said, progress, it feels from our perspective, has been slow. 
and there's brands are still mostly focused on improving their sustainability because that seems to be a bit on so the environmental because that's more in the news and that's where consumers have been putting the higher level of pressure on but uh the people side is definitely feels to us falling by the wayside unfortunately fantastic over to you Great. Well, thank you so much for Anna and Christian for such an insightful introduction to their organization. So I'm Delphine. I'm from Fashion Revolution. So in a nutshell, we're the world's largest activism movement and we were founded following the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013. So Fashion Revolution as an organization, we work on three different pillars. So the first one is cultural shift. The second being industry shift. And the third is legislation shift. So obviously the people pillar is incredibly important for us because we believe there's no sustainable fashion without fair pay and that there is no fashion at all without the people who make our clothes ultimately. So um, that's why we work on many different levels to ensure better working conditions for workers. And we do that through raising awareness through social media, which we have a fairly big presence on social media, where we lead public campaigns to not only highlight the human rights and environmental abuses taking place within the fashion industry. So for instance, we'll try and highlight the role of purchasing practices within the fashion industry as many people won't know when they buy clothes that only a small percentage of the t-shirt they buy actually goes to the garment worker and how do brands negotiate the price that they will pay to suppliers and to factories when they actually produce those clothes so I think that's one thing that we try to do as an organization is really raise awareness as to First of all, why are people paid so low within the fashion industry? Why do we still have poverty wages in 2022 when it's been an issue within the fashion industry for decades? So um, that's one big shift that we try to do is on one hand, raise awareness and ask questions like who made my clothes? What's in my clothes from an environmental perspective? As we all know that chemicals are chemical use within the fashion industry is incredibly dangerous, but also who made my fabric as we try to move further down the supply chain? Because the main issue within the fashion industry is that there's a lack of transparency, but also traceability. So most brands and retailers don't even know where their clothes are produced. So how can they actually know the working conditions within the factories where these clothes are produced? So that's one thing that we focus on as an organization is the push for greater transparency. And again, not to be conflated with traceability, which leads me to my second point is industry change. So we work on transparency through our Fashion Transparency Index report, which is a report that reviews and ranks 250 of the world's largest brands and retailers. And what do we try to do through this research is we try to collect publicly disclosed information from these brands and retailers as they have the largest impacts on gun workers within the fashion industry. And we ask them, do you have policies on a number of indicators, 250? 46 to be exact. We asked them a number of questions on whether they have a child labor policy. Do they have any initiatives regarding child labor policies, for instance, but also what are they actually doing in terms of due diligence? Do they publish their suppliers list? Because I think ultimately we founded this report based on the fact that there was no transparency within the fashion industry. So if there is no transparency and you don't know what's actually happening within your supply chain, how can you actually resolve any human rights abuses? So that's why we really try to focus on pushing for greater transparency, which would ultimately lead to greater accountability. So through our research, we then collect this data and publish it within a report and everything is publicly available. So any NGO on the ground, any activist, any consumer, any citizen, any brand, any investor can access all our data as it's all open source. And the reason we do that, that is because we really feel that the Fashion Transparency Index should be used to inform your activism. And what does that mean 
in a practical sense. So we work with organizations like CCC, where they use all our data on living wages, for instance. We have a number of indicators that cover living wage information. So I can tell you that 96% of the brands that we review do not say whether garment workers are paid a living wage. And those who do will tell us that they do not pay a living wage to their garment workers. So that means that the 250 largest brands and retailers to this day are still not able to pay a living wage, which is not, you know, huge ask. It's incredibly complex to implement, but ultimately when brands are making such huge profits, this should be a baseline to this day. So this is the type of data that is then collected by organizations like CCC, where they will be able to cross-check the claims made by brands when they say, we have a strategy in place on the ground. We do this, we do that in this country. CCC will then be able to take this information and see whether this claim is accurate or not. And that's where you can check through the Fashion Checker, for instance, which is a platform where you can see what brands are claiming to be doing on living wages and then what they're actually doing. So this is why we created this report is not to say brands are amazing because they're disclosing all of this information, but ultimately it's to really showcase that we're collecting all this data. It's a fantastic tool for activism because it means that all this data is centralized and then any organization on the on the ground can then cross-check, any trade union can then cross-check this information. And if your favorite brand is in the index, you can then ask them, okay, this is what you're claiming. What are you actually doing? We want to see further information on this. Um, so that's the second part of the of the research that we do in terms of supporting workers within supply chains. And ultimately, we have conversations with brands where we really try and push them behind the scenes as well as to what they're actually doing. So it's led to very interesting, com in, insightful conversations, sometimes very difficult with brands as well within the index. And then the third pillar is around legislation change. And we need a level playing field. Brands are not going to start looking at labor conditions within the supply chain if they're not forced to, unfortunately, which is why we're actively campaigning on legislation to level the playing field. And uh, as an example, we're part of different coalitions with other NGOs to push for better legislation for workers at EU level, for instance, through coalitions with FTO, which is the Fair Trade Advocacy Office, CCC as well. And there's lots of organizations that we work with to make sure that the legislation that we have in place within the fashion industry is supporting garment workers worldwide, not just within the EU. And another example is through our Good Clothes Fair Pay campaign, which is a living wage campaign where any company sells their products on the EU market would have to close the gap between what garment workers are earning within their supply chain and what a living wage actually is. When we see news of organizations, big brands stating that they're even giving away all their profits to planet Earth, I think that's fantastic. But ultimately, it's, it leads to the question, how do you amass so much profit when ultimately the garment workers within your supply chain have not been paid a living wage, which ultimately means that this profit was accumulated because people were oppressed within supply chains. And I think that's something worth remembering. When we see news of around philanthropy from brands, I think that's something where we really need to push harder within the industry. Fantastic. I mean, those are very, very extensive introductions. It's fantastic. And thank you so much for raising all those points as well. So the conversation around sustainability in the garment industry often forgets about the people in the people and planet. So that's kind of why we're here today. So we want to discuss just that, the human story in fashion. So Anna, let's start with you. Can you please outline the key problems <laughs> in the garment industry with regards to kind of exploitation more specifically within the supply chain? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's such a huge 
question. The main thing to mention really is about wage. <laughs> I mean, we've got to talk about the economics as the root of the problem in fashion. So poverty pay is endemic in the fashion industry. I uh, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of factories that I know anywhere for any brand that are paying a living wage. Uh, sorry, outside of the UK, there are some factories in the UK that do it. But again, it's still quite limited. I see living wage as an enabling right that has a huge knock on. If we could solve the issue of wage, it would affect a whole load of other problems that are happening in factories about excessive overtime or children in education, uh, the the role of housing, of childcare. You know, most women who are working in these factories have families and communities who rely on on their wages and actually to solve the issue of what they're paid would also release support for for wider development within those communities so living wage really at the crux because also it's about how much time workers have then to be agents of change to be pushing for difference in their workplace you know we we hear from women who are not able to be part of unions because they don't have the time to do it let alone the suppression that's happening within their factories to limit them on it so living wage would really change something for the ability of factory of activists on the ground to be released to be agents of change and then freedom of association I think is also the other key thing which which is at the crux of of problems in the fashion industry so we see really low unionization rates across so many different factories at the root of that is because union suppression is in is also systematically built into how the fashion industry operates. So, so many workers on temporary contracts um, where they're then worried about being part of a, a union. And if they were part of a union, then their temporary contract wouldn't be renewed. Or many unionists also talk about experiencing active violence within workplaces. So if the industry were to see more organising of workers so that they were then able to speak with a collective voice to say, look, we need better wages, we need safety, we need working hours that are reasonable for our families, then that could really see a step change also for the industry. Um, And then at the root of all of this really is about power. I think we have to say something about how the fashion industry is essentially a colonial endeavour <laughs> that actually it's built on the principles of racism and sexism and classism and the, the way that the industry has developed has been about outsourcing um, responsibility for people and production but maintaining economic control and then because of that that means then the mainly people of colour who are employed in making our clothes um, are, are, are not able to speak up and fight back because the money is held and the power is held and the decision making is held in Western nations. Those people are not given voice and power to fight back about what's happening in, in their production places. Fantastic. Very important points there. Um, going back to the point you made about safety, this is a bit of an open question, but when we think about how many people actually work in the industry in terms of the supply chain. I think you mentioned this in your introduction, Delphine, about, you know, we think about garment workers, but before the factory, there's people creating the fabrics, like really making. How can we ensure that there is safety across the whole supply chain? And and what does that look like? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think at the moment, the first step is always transparency. Because again, I I think the further you look down the supply chain, ultimately, the greater the risk is that there are abuses as well. Because when you look at, for instance, home workers, which are workers that usually don't have standard contracts, work from home, ultimately, there is no safety guidelines as to how they should be working from home in the first place, how much they should be earning, because sometimes they don't even have steady contracts as well. So I think ultimately, it's 
the further you look down the supply chain, it makes it incredibly harder to look at. And I think some people would say the first thing you need to do is ensure that they have contracts. There is a lot of debates around like whether they need contracts, what types of contracts should they have? What does that contract include? How do you ensure that then within those contracts they're paid fairly? Because obviously when you look at a garment worker in a factory, it's simpler in the sense that someone that goes in the factory has specific targets to achieve a day and then will go home. Whereas I think a lot of workers um, who work in in formal setups, they might be paid on a piece rate basis as well. And I think the piece rate basis is a massive issue within the fashion industry because it also means that it doesn't, first of all, there is a huge pressure to achieve specific targets to earn even the bare minimum, uh, let alone a living wage. And then the second issue is, is again, the informality of the whole sector. So in terms of how do you change that, I would say the first thing is ultimately legislation. And you need legislation not only on transparency, but also on what brands are, are doing to ensure that these informal workers are taken into account when brands are purchasing from, from more informal activities further down their supply chain. So it starts with transparency. And then I think ultimately the next step is contracts that take into account the fact that these garment workers are working in more sort of informal setups what do you need to take into account first of all like do you need to give them extra money to have like a specific dedicated area within their home to set up their sewing machines and so on so I think that's another thing that you need to take into account having spoken to a lot of brands it's not going to move the dial forward I would say just on the health and safety throughout the supply chain and how can you um I don't think you can <laughs> at least for any high street, any sort of large brand, they don't have the traceability for a start to be making any assurances around that. Most of the information we process from the large brands is only referring to cut, make, trim. It's only referring to tier one. Some of them do some stuff around the dye houses and they will talk about visiting them and ensuring health and safety and they might be doing some auditing reports and stuff like that. So there's a little bit you can get into sort of tiers two and three, but when you start getting into like the sort of the farming level, for most of those high street brands or the large brands, they're not disclosing any information. They don't have the traceability. I would say it's incredibly difficult to buy any product from them and ensure that health and safety is being met throughout the supply chain on every stage that that product went through before it got into your hands. Just as a side note on that, do you think it's because they don't know the information themselves because it's nothing that they've had to disclose before? Or is it a matter of them just saying, oh, we're not going to disclose that information? Having spoken to the brands, um, most of them don't know. Yeah. They just don't know. They actually, and some of them are, are, are trying and working with their suppliers, but their suppliers don't necessarily want to give up the information on where they source from as well. So it takes years of building trust. Also, their suppliers could have seven or eight different customers. So if you're one brand talking to them saying, I want this information, but the other six or seven say, we don't care. So that's why we put a lot of stress on collaboration and multi-stakeholder initiatives to try and work together and not just blame suppliers as well, which can often happen. We believe the onus is on the brand itself. They're the ones churning out the massive profits. But personally, I think if you do want to try and get something that a product that has got at least very few is going to have a living wage throughout the supply chain. We did an analysis on our 3,500 brands a couple of months ago, and I think we showed that it was one and a half percent of brands are paying a living wage in the final stage of production. And you must remember that actually our database is made of about a thousand large brands, so they're all going to do terrible. But we also seek out 
brands that are more sustainable as well. And there's seven, 800 of them. So they're inflating that number a little bit because they've been set up to be more sustainable. They've been set up with a purpose. We estimate that we want our database over the next 12 months to move to about 10,000 to 15,000 brands. We've already feel we're hitting a bit of a saturation point on the amount of sustainable brands or more sustainable brands out there. So that one and a half percent for just tier one is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. We can only base it on as it's inflated because we're looking for more ethical brands. So it's kind of scary, but yeah, so on the traceability front, I think if you want something, you're going to have to look for a small brand that has been set up almost with the very purpose of being more sustainable. It has to be disclosing information. It has to be documenting what they've done, that they've been out there, that they've been to the farms. There's some certifications which can help. They're not foolproof by any means, but if a product is like fully got certified, GOTS really focuses more on the environment. It does a bit of social yeah. as well, but... I guess our opinion is that the social side isn't quite as robust as the, their environmental side. So there are some certifications which will look at the full supply chain, which can... Ensure safety. Ensure a bit, bit more, more, more likely anyway. Same with fair trade as well. But again, these aren't silver bullets either. So there's a couple of certifications, but I would say, yeah, look towards the smaller brands that have been set up with traceability and people at the forefront of why they were set up in the first place. I just wanted to add a little bit about the role of enforceable agreements. So we're talking about safety. And after the Rana Plaza building collapsed in, in 2013, there was an agreement that was negotiated after a lot of campaign pressure between the, the brands and the global union movement to address factory safety in Bangladesh. And the Rana Plaza building was built on a swamp, you know, Savar district, swampy lands, like poor building regulations, whole load of issues with all of the factories could have happened to any one of them. The Rana Plaza building just happened to be the one. And so actually all the brands who were sourcing from Bangladesh were the ones who were not in the building were going, phew, missed, dodged that billet. But they then engaged in this discussion around how do we make all of these factories safe and negotiated with the union and or the unions and the global union movement to put a program together which would actually improve the safety of those factories and then give a role to the unions to be reporting on safety and has built a progressive and useful tool within the Bangladesh Bangladesh industry and that has been has improved factory safety and you know and actually we need to be looking at how can we have or how can we engineer situations where the brands um, and their purchasing practices and their money agree with the unions and their expertise and their people on the ground on how do we how do we engineer change you know what are the mechanisms for making that change and what are the problems when that gets negotiated at the bargaining table that's where we can also see change so there's a role sure for legislation absolutely we need national and international legislation to look at how do we fix factories and wages importantly i think also the agreements between brands and unions themselves are really key in in driving something different oh, fantastic thank you all for adding in something there because i think it gives us a much more well-rounded conversation with this earlier in your intro delphine you mentioned about the fashion transparency index and this year, Fashion Revolution released its seventh one. I can't believe it's been seven years already. The Fashion Transparency Index is a tool to push the world's largest fashion brands to be more transparent about their social and environmental efforts. Why is transparency so important in the fashion industry? And we will, we've got another question that kind of tacks onto the back of that later. So I'll let you go with this one. 
I mean, I think everyone's sort of added a little bit as to why transparency is incredibly important, especially hearing from everyone's perspective. I think just to add as well to Christian's point around lack of transparency further down the cut make trim, I think there's also a lot of brands that are withholding a lot of information, especially when you look at tanneries within the luxury sector. And I think that's another point as to why transparency is so important. I don't know if you've seen the movie Slay uh, recently that was released on Water Bear Network. I think that there's a lot to be said around whether you believe wool is sustainable or not. However... I think ultimately when you see the working conditions within tanneries, I think that whether it's in Italy, whether it's in another country, I think you can see the amount of abuses and luxury brands are always stating, oh, you know, obviously our leather is from Italy, it's very high quality. And I think that's a clear example as to why do we need transparency? Because brands not disclosing where their tanneries are, ultimately we can see there's huge amounts of um, worker rights abuses from a health and safety perspective. We've seen government workers who are not using adequate PPE and are handling really toxic chemicals when, you know, they go through the whole wet processing. We also see that they use heavy machinery and ultimately end up getting hurt because there is not the right health and safety uh, mechanisms in place and they're pressured to work incredibly long hours. And another thing I'll say is the link or the intersection between lack of transparency, working conditions and immigration. And I think that's a huge issue within the fashion industry where we're seeing that a lot of garment workers are also immigrants who are moving to countries seeking for a better life. And then they end up being kept in an industry that is ultimately completely withdrawing them from their any any sort of rights so for instance they, they might have to pay recruitment fees they might have to give their passport away when they arrive at the job and also that means that you're basically keeping people in forced labor so again transparency is really key because if you don't know where or how supply chains are then ultimately you can't re remedy these huge risks within the fashion industry so again that's like why we created the fashion transparency it's not just it's not the end goal or Ultimately, if a brand scores 100% on our report, we believe that's the baseline and that's the baseline information that we absolutely need to have in order to start questioning what they're actually doing on the ground. And to further Anna's point around the role of the accord, for instance, in Bangladesh, which is a tripartite system where trade unions and then the government and then brands are coming together to remedy health and safety risks. I think that's another way where transparency is absolutely key because through the index, we have relationships with these brands and we ask them, are you supporting things like the accord? Are you making sure that you're taking health and safety seriously? And that's another way where we can leverage transparency and leverage what brands are saying and pushing them to join these types of initiatives as well. Definitely. Christian, I want to keep the topic of transparency going. As we know, transparency doesn't necessarily mean sustainable. So on Good On You, you have so many different factors that go into making your results. So what would you say is like the perfect equation to a sustainable brand <laughs> is that the right word to use there, there, there are different pathways throughout our methodology we look beyond just the transparency element yeah. we also look at the performance element so we're tracking particularly for large brands to see whether you know it's one thing to make a great commitment like to set a science-based target or to make a commitment to eliminate hazardous chemicals or make a living wage commitment to you know certain percentage by 2025 to be paid living wages we hold them to account and actually say to demonstrate their progress against it in terms of the perfect equation we look at literally hundreds of data points that make up for it the main way we do it is by looking at the hotspots in the supply chain 
So a brand will often use a lot of its, I guess, greenwashing. We'll talk a lot about its direct operations and how it manages sustainability. It will talk about maybe that they're now all interns are paid living wages or something like that. You know, they try and make this little picture of this perfect little company. But that's, in terms of our methodology, we'll score incredibly badly because we do it by looking at the hotspots. So we will look to see what percentage of workers of their trace supply chain, members of collective bargaining groups, do they disclose the outcomes and what's actually tangible on the ground that's changed. And I think that's a really big area of our focus is that it's one thing that Abraham will also talk about saying we've run training workshops with our suppliers in China. Okay, great. We'll give a small amount of points for running for running it, but what's actually changed? What has actually been the progress from that? Have wages improved? Have you managed to increase trade union membership? What has actually changed on the ground? So I guess that's where a big focus of us is. We do give points just for transparency itself. We actually include the FDI scores in our methodology because as we do believe in collaboration. So that partially drives a brand's labor score. We will look at the FDI score and say that's the transparency. And then we add a few extra indicators of our own on top, particularly around living wages, particularly around the worker empowerment element and just add a few more on top. So, yeah, basically, in terms of the perfect equation, there's so many different ways that a brand can score well. We don't like to say this is the one path for some brands going down the certifications route might be the best approach for them. Not that, as I said earlier, that, that any certification out there is a silver bullet. For some of them, they say that's too expensive. However, we're going to work really closely. We're going to keep a really tight, narrow supply chain, all localized. And that's perfectly fine as well. So the main thing is that our methodology needs to be flexible to allow the various different ways that a brand can manage it. And also the type of products that a brand makes is also going to be different. So for a brand that just makes cotton t-shirts, they pretty much all go down the same pathway, which is that they go for a Gotts cotton t-shirt. They might be made to order. They might be uh, manufactured all locally. They might be ensured that those all local workers all pay living wages. It's all quite tight knit, but like a leather goods brand is going to go through a different pathway. And I actually just want to draw out on the point on luxury because I feel the luxury market gets a bit of a free pass when it comes yeah. on the people pillar. And actually, there isn't a huge amount of difference in their people score compared to your standard, even fast fashion brands. They often will present a very nice, very picturesque picture. They'll say, uh, everything we've done from the tanneries to the manufacturing is all done in Italy by local artisans who have kept it, you know, we work with family-owned workshops, what family-owned what does that really mean in practice? When actually it can be made by migrant labor incredibly cheaply in really bad conditions. However, they present this beautiful picture and actually the luxury market has got a bit of a free pass because the people that tend to have bought luxury haven't put the same pressure on them in the same way that consumers have for the fast fashion brands or your standard high street brand. I think that also shows the impact that consumer pressure has that we are noticing a lot of the large high street brands are waking up. They're not doing enough. That's not to give them anything, but are clocking onto the fact that their consumers want it. We're seeing luxury way further behind. A couple of luxury brands aren't too bad, but uh, luxury generally further behind. And I think that to me demonstrates that consumers, people putting pressure or societal pressure actually does have an impact because we're actually noticing the change between even like the likes of the horrendous boohoo and <laughs> disclosing more information bad than some of the luxury brands. So I think that just shows the impact that we can have as consumers to put the pressure on. As I said, everyone is miles behind, but the luxury just gets a little bit of a free pass generally. And 
And if I can just add to that as well, very quickly, just to give you an example, I had a conversation with a luxury brand a few months ago where we were discussing their FTI score and they were trying to disclose their raw material supplies, which is great because I think a lot of luxury brands do not do that. Having said that, they were mentioning their fair trade partnership for one bag one single bag that is produced with a fair trade uh, organization and they kept on pushing and pushing and pushing for more points just for this one product out of all their products just saying see we're doing amazing we're doing so much and we're really not understanding why you're not giving us more points on like living wages and it's like well first of all this organization doesn't pay living wage by the way if you didn't know this fair trade does not ensure living wages for garment workers they pay above minimum wage but that's a huge sort of myth whenever you think about fair trade it's fantastic to see that they are supporting craftsmanship but if you have one partnership with one fair trade organization and they pay just a little bit above you know minimum wage ultimately that does not ensure a decent livelihood for workers as well so I think that's just a a clear example as to how luxury also tries to sometimes jump on the bandwagon of we're doing amazingly when they might sell a t-shirt that's for 600 pounds produced in the same factory as any t-shirt from H&M or any high street brand and then a very small proportion of that will go to garment workers who are not paid a fair wage and then they will say but we're a luxury brand we can afford to do that so yeah. I was thinking about the index and last summer, a couple of summers ago, I remember giggling in the garden with Bianca because how H&M kind of misunderstood. We're sustainable. Obviously, we're sustainable (laughs) because we're transparent. We're amazing. (laughs) And I was thinking, are there companies, other companies that have kind of misunderstood the point of your businesses? Or we could flip that on the other side and they've understood and have really gone for it in a different way so you can either get a positive yeah. story or a negative story to be honest I think not that controversial to be honest I think it's good to also like talk about some mistakes that we as an organization have done in terms of communicating our research so the issue is for those who don't know H&M came first a few years ago and they said on every single social media channel we are the world's most transparent brand which ultimately was conflated with we are the most sustainable brand in the world well the fact that they're the most the world's most transparent brand is inaccurate because we only look at 250 brands and retailers in the world so first of all that's wrong and second of all are they the most sustainable brand in the world again no because transparency does not equate sustainability so in order to safeguard us and safeguard our research a little bit we've provided and created some very extensive communication guidelines as to how brands are allowed to communicate our research so we have briefings with brands we tell them exactly this is how you can communicate our research and if we see any sort of communication that is not in line with our communication guideline we'll ask your organization to take it down and if you don't within a certain timeline I think we've given them like 48 hours we basically start calling them out on social media and say this is actually not what our research is about so that's one thing and in terms of your second point about have brands started understanding the purpose of our research yes I think some brands like OVS for instance have really understood the purpose of our research in the sense that they know it's obviously focusing on transparency and they've really used our index as a tool to look into the gaps to be honest I think some of the things is like they've said we'd never even considered looking at this which scary a little bit but also good because it means that we're putting all these issues on their radar as we have 246 indicators we're trying to push for greater transparency but also for brands to think about all the things they should be thinking about as a business so this year we've included an indicator on tax 
do they have like a tax strategy in place? Is it publicly disclosed? What is the purpose of this? It's to make sure that brands ultimately, there is a huge tax problem in the fashion industry. Are they thinking about this? What are they actually claiming? What is coming out in the news? Because I'm sure you've all seen brands, you know, being in tax havens and so on. So when they have a tax strategy, we can actually call them out more easily. Hold on a minute. You have this tax strategy publicly available. Why are you, you know, why are you based in the Bahamas or in Barbados or wherever? So I think, again, yeah, absolutely. I think... I hope that answers your question. No, it does. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I can add to that because we also have received a bit of hate for our H&M I can imagine. Rate, yeah. rating as well. And again, there was a bit of a failure to communicate that actually very few large brands in our methodology of the several hundred that we've rated, as I said, only 15% of them have achieved in its start, which is where H&M currently sits. I guess with scoring, there's two different philosophies for it. One is that you um, say that these are the best. They're not great, but these are the best. So we'll put them at the top and the top 5% will be at the top and the next 10% will be at four out of five. And because three out of five is roughly the middle, we'll put half of them there and, you know, and basically do a histogram sort of thing and make sure the bottom is only a tiny percentage. We don't believe in that type of scoring. We believe in more objective measures against sustainability. And if everyone is mostly doing bad, then mostly people are doing bad. So basically in, what it ends up in effect is that for large brands, they're stretched across. It's a start, not good enough. And we avoid. Currently, H&M are the only fast fashion brand to score an it's a start, which is controversial. I guess it's to differentiate the fact that they are doing more than the likes of Boohoo. They're doing more than the likes of Zara. They're more than the likes of Shein. Are they sustainable? Absolutely not. And they will never achieve a good. So basically, if we find that a brand has been disclosing information that's been misleading, we put a cap on their score as well. So there's only a maximum. So they cannot achieve anything higher than they currently do. However, we do need to provide incentives for brands to do better. And so if we rate everyone right down at the bottom and put everyone at not good enough and we avoid, we don't create any change at all. We recognize that H&M getting and it's a start is controversial. We believe that of the fast fashion brands, they are doing more than others, are they sustainable? Absolutely not. They're inherently unsustainable. They will never be able to get anything higher than what they currently get. But we recognize that that rating has created heat in the past. And it's to also identify the fact that, you know, some people are always going to continue to shop high street brands. And so we want to give them, okay, this brand isn't good. But, but if you are going to do that, then we, if we give everyone a low one, they'll be like, well, I'll just buy Shein then or buy Boohoo. For us, that doesn't really work because we want to give consumers choice. And also, a lot of the sustainable brands that we've got that are rated good and great are expensive. Buying from charity shops, buying from charity shops also can be argued as part of a broken problem because of the amount of sheer waste that is actually falling into them anyway. But yes, we can say buy secondhand, buy op shops, and that's what we do. We always say that first thing is the most sustainable clothes is the ones you already own. Exactly. The second is to buy secondhand swaps. But if you are going to buy new, it's about giving people choice and giving people the power to make that decision themselves. So we write a summary for people to look at and actually say, actually, this brand's doing terrible on people, but Maybe that doesn't matter to that person. Maybe they just care about the environmental pillar or maybe they just care about the... We empower people to shop with their ethics as well. Yeah, yeah, which is important. That gives you some food for thought, doesn't it? Gosh, our final question. What's one word? <laughs> one word that you think describes exactly or encompasses 
everything that needs to be done to bring about positive change in the industry. I, I think I know what you're I think you're all going to say the same word. Yeah. <laughs> go first. Oh, yeah. Degrowth. <laughs> Love that. I'm going to go collective bargaining. I like that. That's a term, so you're fine. <laughs> uh, revolution. That is a really perfect place for us to close. Yeah. So I just wanted to say a massive thank you to our audience as well as our panellists. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you all for being here. <laughs> if you guys want to just say where people can find you. That'd be great. Um, yeah, definitely have a look at Fashion Revolution. We're on pretty much every single social media you can think of, even TikTok. And do follow Good Close Fair Pay on Instagram and check out our page, goodcloseferpay.eu. Yeah, recommend for people to follow Good On You on Instagram and social media, but also download our app so that you can find brands that meet your ethics. Go to labourbehindthelabel.org or check out any of our Insta feeds. The most powerful thing you can do is to be a citizen and act and change the fashion industry and you can shop however you want. Well, that was us in Bristol. Hope you enjoyed us on location and we'll see you next week for another episode. Bye. Sustainably Influenced is hosted by Bianca Foley and me, Charlotte Williams. This season was produced by Content is Queen, sound edited by Amber Miller. And a big thanks to our researcher, Anna Stoney. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.